So we're in the second chapter. We're going to start with the 20th verse this evening. For the soul there is neither birth nor death, nor having once been does he ever cease to be. He is unborn, eternal, ever existing and primeval. He is not slain when the body is slain. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual master has opened my eyes with the torch light of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. Krishna is continuing his very succinct <coughs> knowledge and instruction to Arjuna. As you'll see, if you read the purports, Prabhupada makes the correlation between two or three verses that Krishna speaks in the Gita Upanishad, this section of the Bhagavad Gita. Actually, the whole Bhagavad Gita is sometimes referred to as Gita Upanishad. And various other Upanishads where similar verses are there. So as we explained last week, this is these are the codes of transcendental knowledge. Generally, the such packed up, compressed knowledge is difficult for us to to comprehend. I mean, just this verse alone, Ajayate, Mriyate, Vakadan, Shin. So much information, every single word, every syllable, syllable has so many meanings. Nayambhutva, Bhavita, Vana, Buya. Kadachit, at any time, past, present, or future. The soul never, never did the soul not exist in past, present, or future. It's always there. It doesn't come into being. Buya. It doesn't come again into being because it's always been there. It's unborn, undying, eternal, permanent. Sasvata, permanent. Purana, the oldest. Hanyate, it's never killed. Never, na, hanyate, never killed. Hanyamane, being killed. It never we will be killed. Krishna's making a point here. He's making a lot of points in these verses. He's, he's giving, a, giving Arjuna the essence of transcendental knowledge in these verses. And he's giving it to him from all angles of vision. So that there'll be no question as to a comprehensive understanding. That's the nature of spiritual knowledge. Not only that, but the student of transcendental knowledge will note that as he progresses himself in ridding his consciousness of misconceptions as to spiritual reality, that deeper and deeper meanings become evident. In all the revealed scriptures, that's the nature of transcendental knowledge. Why? Because it's transcendental. It's knowledge of the Supreme. What's a feature of the Supreme? He's infinite. Knowledge about the infinite is also infinite. It's of the same quality. We will never come to a complete and total understanding of the Supreme. But 
that we'll never, the fact that we'll never completely know the Supreme does not in any way inhibit our entering into a loving, eternal relationship with Him. There's no impediment there. There's another unique feature of the infinite. He's infinitely expanding. And enjoyment in relationship with Him is ever-increasing. It does not end. So as we begin to take to the process of factual spiritual life, as we begin to actually purify ourselves of the contamination of material consciousness in a dignified and authorized way, as that happens, then we enter into the a relationship with the, that transcendental knowledge that culminates in a full loving relationship with the Supreme Lord that will never be satiated. Unfortunately, on this plane of existence, no matter what relationships we develop, they're never fully satisfying. And even if they're really, really, really good and really satisfying, this plane of existence is temporary. Everything that we experience in this plane of existence is temporary. And even the most satisfying relationships, they're going to end. It doesn't matter how good it is. It doesn't matter because on this plane, as long as we seek enjoyment through this facility, this body, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. It's just not going to be satisfying. Just for a moment, imagine. Imagine that ideal conception you hold in your mind of the perfect lover that perfect at one point there's been that conception this is the this is the man for me this is the woman for me oh this is this is what i this my life will be fulfilled now i found my life's fulfillment I hold that thought and then peel away the skin what immediately comes Flies, maggots, what? <laughs> I relate to you a, a story from the uh, from the scriptures. Uh, there was one once a young gentleman, and he came across a young lady, and he was smitten. And just as I said, he he had to have this lady. Now, of course, she was she was a godly lady. She had some spiritual sense about her. And having that spiritual consciousness, she wanted to do the best thing for everybody. That's the nature of a saint, a sadhu. And there's both male and female saints and sadhus. So she was a knowledgeable lady. And she had, she had good, good intentions all around. And she knew that no matter what she did in this life, she could never really satisfy her suitor. So she wanted to help him understand spiritual life. So she said, fine, I will satisfy your advances. You come back two or three days. Come. And 
we will consummate our relationship. And imagine things. Liven. He came back in two or three days. Knocked on the door. Had his tie on or whatever. Dove talk sighted. You know, his perfume. Just bathed. He was all spiffed up. Knocked on the door. This lady came to the door. I'm looking for the young lady I saw here a few days ago. The lady that came to the door, of course, was all shriveled up. She didn't look good at all. She wasn't radiant. She was, she was completely depleted. Looked like she hadn't eaten in a month. Skin was loose on her bones. Her clothing was loose. Her breasts were sagging. It was not the lady that, that the boy had met. And he said, I was looking. She said, I'm that lady? Look at her again. I don't think so. Come on. I mean, three days ago, this youth, this gorgeous woman, my, you're not the lady. Yes, I am. Where'd your beauty go? Where'd your radiance go? Where'd your youthfulness go? You can't be the same person. She said, yes, I am. And if you want to know where all that youthfulness went and radiance and everything you desired is, I kept it for you. It's in a pot over there. For those two and three days between the time when the young man saw this beautiful young girl and then came back, she had taken some laxatives. Some, she'd purged everything out of her body for three days. And she kept it all and it was in a pot. She said, there's my youthfulness. So his attraction was on the wrong level. His attraction was in relationship with the body. And what's the ultimate end of this body? It's going to get old, gray. It's going to wrinkle up. The skin is going to start getting loose. The bones are going to get brittle and break. Getting old, I don't want to talk any further than that. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no such thing as a fountain of youth, huh? (laughs) Not on this level. Not in this plane, but yes, there is. There is a fountain of youth. So you can't really look really nice and then you really were before? You can't what? I was, I was saying that you can't stay young forever. Have you met anybody that's done that? Just me. I'm just, I'm just saying, you, you can't really stay young forever if you, you get really old looking. You're not staying with your youth and stuff? Doesn't last. <laughs> really? No. Um, I'm sorry to inform you, it does not last. Wow. When we hear these, these verses, to try to, to tie them in, as I said last week, the knowledge, spiritual knowledge is not difficult to comprehend. I mean, this verse is simple. If we understand that we're spiritual in nature, to hear that, the nature of that existence. Never was there a time when the soul was born or dies. We accept that. Easily understood. For the soul, there's never birth or death. Once it's been, it's always going to be there. Doesn't grow old. Doesn't change in any way. But the body changes. Theoretically, it's easy to understand. Practically, how do we employ such transcendental information in our day-to-day existence in a practical way. 
That's spiritual knowledge. That's the whole intent of Bhagavad Gita. To show Arjuna practically, first of all, let me relieve your dilemma by giving you knowledge of your spiritual nature. Let's start there. So this is the beginning of Krishna's instruction. For the soul, there's never birth nor death. Having once been, he never ceases to be. He has not come into being, does not come into being, and will not come into being. He is unborn, eternal, ever existing, primeval. He is not slain when the body is slain. How can a person who knows that the soul is indestructible, eternal, unborn, and immutable kill anyone or cause anyone to kill? Well, on the spiritual level, there's no question of killing. Can't kill anybody. It's pretty esoteric though, isn't it? I mean, really. You can't kill anybody? Whoa. It means I can do whatever I like. It'd be nice if it was that easy. As a person puts on new garments, we do this every day, giving up the old ones, the soul similarly accepts new material bodies, giving up the old and useless ones. The soul can never be cut to pieces by any weapon, nor burnt by fire, nor moistened by water, nor withered by the wind. It all makes sense. Simple, huh? Simple stuff here. Interesting in relation to this particular verse. Although we don't have personal experience in current times, what's being referred to here by Krishna to Arjuna is it doesn't matter what weapon is used in the battle, none of it will affect the soul. There was a point in time where mankind, through the use of advanced military science, had weapons out of all the different elements. So that's what actually is being referred to here. Arjuna had knowledge of that advanced military science. The soul can never be cut or pierced by any weapon, burned, like we have our atomic weapon, moistened by the water, withered by the wind. So they had all these weapons, and one weapon could counteract the other weapon. Just like we could play that game, right? What is it? Rock. Rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. So they had all their weapons and they would have, they would be able to, if somebody was sending a, a, you know, a fire weapon at them, they could counteract that with a water weapon. Sort of like the sword and the shield. Yeah. Airbender. <laughs> I was just thinking that too. So were these weapons like the Brahmastra? Were they mantra mm-hmm. controlled? Yeah, m- mostly ma- mantra controlled, yes. This individual soul is unbreakable and insoluble and can be neither burned nor dried. He is everlasting, present everywhere, unchangeable, immovable, and eternally the same. And back to last time we went through this, this little question here, present everywhere. So the explanation is there in the poor point that present doesn't mean we're present everywhere, we're localized. But... Living entities are present everywhere. And there's different bodies. And Prabhupada brings out in the purport here, if you read it, he brings out that even on the sun, of course, we don't believe that any living entity could live on the sun because we don't have any experience of it. But if you had a fiery body, it'd be no problem. It is said that the soul is invisible, inconceivable, 
and immutable. Knowing this, you should not grieve for the body. So in these few verses, Krishna has given Arjuna a very concise understanding of the nature of our spiritual existence. And he's giving this knowledge to Arjuna in order to counteract Arjuna's attachment to bodily designations. But then he goes on, he says, okay, I've given you this understanding of what spiritual knowledge. If you don't accept the nature of the soul, and there's always a class of men who don't accept. They say that this body comes about by some chemicals come together, and then all of a sudden they make a little teeny body and it wiggles around and it grows legs and crawls out of the water and then it, uh, you know, grows wings and starts to fly. And so by the evolution of matter, we have ever-progressive bodies culminating in what we have now, the human form of life. Here's the Supreme Lord himself trying to give knowledge to Arjuna, but he's, let me give you all-encompassing knowledge. Why would he even bring it up if it's not truthful? Why would he even bring up the atheistic viewpoint in text 26? Why even use that as an argument in trying to convince Arjuna that to fight in the battle is acceptable? Isn't By doing that, isn't God basically saying, well, if you don't believe in me, if you don't believe in spirit, if you don't believe in me, the supreme spirit, and yourself being a part of me, then let's go from that angle of vision. So starting with 26, what's he say? If, however, you think that the soul or the symptom of life is always born and dies forever, you still have no reason to lament, O mighty arm. One who has taken his birth is sure to die. You're still going to die. Even if you believe you came from matter, the body's still going to go. The matter is still going to dis disintegrate and merge back into the earth. It's either going to become ashes or it's going to become stool. But it's going to go away. If we burn the body, it's ash turns to ashes. If you throw the body out in the field... Well, there's the vultures and the so many living entities are going to come. Even you bury it in the ground, the living entities are going to come. They're just littler. And you still end up in stool. Huh? So at the end, you're going to be compost. Yes. One who has taken birth is sure to die. And after death, one is sure to take birth again. Therefore, in the unavoidable discharge of your duty, you should not lament. All created beings are unmanifest in their beginning, manifest in their interim state, and unmanifest again when annihilated. So what need is there for lamentation? Some look on the soul as amazing, some describe him as amazing, and some hear of him as amazing, while others, even after hearing about him, cannot understand him at all. O descendant of Bart, he who dwells in the body can never be slain. Therefore you need not grieve for any living being. Krishna has given a very comprehensive argument to counteract Arjuna's reluctance to fight, showing that really nothing's going to change here as far as spiritual existence. 
And even if you don't believe in the existence of the soul, nothing's going to change. Now back to that question about the atheistic viewpoint being given. Sometimes it's necessary in order to further the purpose of upliftment in human society that spiritual knowledge is misrepresented. Now this happened just recently. The Vedic knowledge is there. All the scriptures are there. And in the scriptures, there is the sanctioning of sacrifice. But it's done in a very controlled way. And it's never done exploitively when properly employed. However, there was a time in the history, recent history, where mankind took the knowledge of the Vedas, they performed sacrifices, but in performing their sacrifices, their interest was not spiritual advancement. Their interest was simply in material enjoyment. So therefore, they performed their sacrifices just to satisfy their tongue by eating meat. So they would sacrifice animals. We've all heard of this in times of the past. They'd sacrifice animals and then they'd eat them. Well, that's really not the purpose of spiritual sacrifice. In fact, in spiritual sacrifice, unless you are pure enough in your existence and you have full mastery of, what do we talk about? Arjuna had mastery of? He had mastery of the military science. And how did he control his weapons? By mantra. He had that much control of his mind and senses. Similarly, the Brahmins that performed sacrifice, they were so powerful that when they offered the animal in the fire of sacrifice, the animal would immediately give it, be given a better body. Lacking such spiritually qualified priests, people took knowledge of the Vedas, performed sacrifice, and they performed sacrifice simply to take advantage of the innocent animal for the satisfaction of the tongue. That's not going to be pleasing to the Supreme. So what happened? Krishna came as Buddha. Came himself as Buddha and what did he do? He gave information that don't follow the Vedas. They're recommending killing animals. That's not good for you. It's not good at all. Let's forget the Vedas. Since you're not intelligent enough to know how to use them, let's put them aside. <laughs> it's basically what he was saying. Follow Ahimsa. Nonviolence. Follow me. Well, in that way, God, coming himself as Buddha, tricked mankind into setting aside the Vedas and accepting him and his philosophy of impersonalism, of voidism. Forget the Vedas, forget the concept of the spirit soul being eternal. The actual object, object of spirituality is to merge. Turn everything off. And certainly, don't perform sacrifices where you hurt other living entities. Let's follow Ahimsa, 
Otherwise, you, if you don't follow ahimsa, you're going to be wrapped up in the laws of karma. And nobody wants that. The object of spirituality is to end karma. Krishna came at that time and also gave this conception. You accept this. And then gradually we see that there is an evolution back to the per perfect understanding of theism. After Lord Buddha, Sankaracharya came. He adopted the the Mayavad, he, he introduced the Mayavad philosophy, which is very akin to Buddhism. Nirvasesa Sunyavadi, the Buddhists are Sunyavadi. He, he introduced, well, it's not actually void. There's actually spirit, and you merge into the Supreme Spirit. You're part of the Supreme Spirit. Sankaracharya was followed by Ramanujacharya, introduced the Supreme Lord as a separate entity from whom that spiritual energy emanates. Madhvacharya, followed by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, just 500 years ago, who introduced the highest understanding of theism. Even Krishna himself, in order to get us back on track, may present some misconception, just like the little child who will not take medicine. So what do we do? We hide it. Oh no, but would you like this nice sweet little drink? <laughs> it's laced with medicine that you hate, but tastes really good. So this, this knowledge, the, this codified, upasandic presentation of the nature of the spirit soul, you will see how later in this chapter, Krishna uses these fundamentals of understanding in order to gradually bring Arjuna into the proper consciousness so that he can execute his duty. Generally in life, we center all of our duties, our activities, our day-to-day -day existence is centered around an exploitation of the environment for our personal enjoyment. Arjuna, although he had a cultured, apparently cultured, perspective on why he shouldn't do his duty. Well, I don't want to kill my teachers. Well, Krishna's saying, what's the question of killing your teachers? Your teachers are spirit souls, and just because they're in a body, you're not going to kill them. That's, uh, that's the whole argument here. Well, but still, it'll hurt. It'll hurt them. No, it won't hurt them. Because actually, and if you read the purports here, Actually, what, did, what does Prabhupada bring out? Actually, for someone who has done abominable actions, that take the necessary action to counteract that is in their best interest. And Prabhupada uses the, uses the example of the murderer. If someone is a murderer and, you, and he does not receive punishment, then he can't move forward. He has to suffer karmically for his reaction. So therefore, we find in any civilized society, the murderer is what? He's put to death. It's in his best interest. Get it over with. Otherwise, what? Who knows what his existence is? 
He has to come back and suffer. So similarly, in this situation, even Arjuna's relatives and friends, they had acted inappropriately, but they were all warriors. And what's the result for a warrior who enters into the battle and dies nobly in the cause? He's benefited. All of his sinful reactions are wiped clean. <coughs> and then Krishna goes on to make the argument that not only that, but they're going to be much better off. From a spiritual point of view, they're going to be much better off. Now I know when we read these verses, it's hard because all the warning bells go off, don't they? Oh my gosh, This what kind of philosophy is this that God's trying to give Arjuna? This is just wrong, wrong, wrong. The bells and whistles are going, what, what, killing, oh my. That's just due to a material, our material attachment. We do not in any way condone murder. We do not condone this, those such activities except when they're done under proper supervision. The judge sits on the bench and when he says, this man must go and pay for his crime, is he responsible for the suffering of the criminal? No. He can go home and sleep at night. He doesn't have to have it on his conscience. He's simply doing what is in the best interest of society. Similarly, in this instance, we must see Krishna is telling Arjuna to engage in the battle for the best interest of society. He's giving him, first of all, practical spiritual information so that he knows that in doing his duty, he's doing it in the best interest of everyone involved. The warriors on the other side will die in noble battle. They will be benefited by such a death. And we have to see it in the proper perspective. You have to silence all the bells and whistles that go off and say, my gosh, what kind of a philosophy is this? This is supposed to be the highest theistic truth, this Bhagavad Gita. And immediately, I'm only in the second chapter and all I'm hearing is God talking about killing people. <laughs> Maybe this is not really for me. Well, back up and think. When the Supreme Judge says what is right and what is wrong, and when he instigates the proper course of action in society, as he does here on the battlefield, he is no different than that court judge who sits on the bench and passes down judgment based on the high law of the land. Turn down the bells and whistles. Learn this great science you'll find in the end there's the greatest gift to be given in understanding the difference between what is matter and what is spirit, what is proper activity, and what is exploitative activity, avoidance activity, and not based on spiritual love. So I'll stop there. Are there any questions?
he's, he's an interesting, sort of a really good teacher.